This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. Or you can find us directly on our social media pages, Healing Paths Recovery, or directly on our website, www.healingpathsrecovery.com. And while you're there, I would love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. Today's podcast episode, I want to focus on childhood emotional neglect. Now, maybe you've heard this term before. Maybe this is a new term for you. One of the things about childhood emotional neglect is that it is often hidden. And especially if there were other things that were happening in our childhood, let's say maybe we lived with a rager or an addict or different things like that, this childhood emotional neglect will kind of blend into the background and it often, like I said, is easily hidden from us. And so we may not be aware of childhood emotional neglect. We may not be aware of how it is impacting us in our adult lives, in our current lives, in our current relationships. We might not understand you know, that there was this childhood emotional neglect in addition to other things that maybe happened. Maybe there was trauma. Maybe there was abuse that was happening as well. Or maybe it was just childhood emotional neglect. So I want to kind of pull this concept apart, talk about it a little bit more in depth. Like I am referencing, we could easily talk about, you know, childhood emotional neglect in addition to childhood trauma or to attachment injuries or to, uh, you know, childhood abuse. And yeah, I want to just give it its own standalone episode so that we can really understand this issue on its own, even though, like I said, it might correlate with other issues that were playing out during our childhoods. So I want you to think about some of your childhood memories. Almost everyone remembers bits and pieces from their childhood, some more than others. Almost all of us have some positive memories like a favorite babysitter or a great family vacation. Maybe we had really good friends and some of our most positive childhood memories are playing outside with our friends. Maybe it was going to summer camp or other achievements that we had in childhood. We typically also have some negative memories like family conflict or sibling rivalry. Maybe there was a school teacher that we just didn't like and we didn't feel like they liked us either. Or maybe it's the ending of a friendship. Friend moved away or for one reason or another, we just fell out of friendship with each other. Childhood emotional neglect is not like these types of memories that I just talked about in your childhood. In fact, it isn't anything you can remember or anything that actually happened in your childhood. Childhood emotional neglect is what didn't happen in your childhood. What we do not remember because they didn't happen. So let's talk about what childhood emotional neglect really means. Well, it means that emotionally, our parents weren't there for us in the way that we needed. Maybe in addition to them physically being present in the home and cooking dinner, cleaning the house, doing our laundry, providing for us, we also needed a hug. We also needed them to sit down and listen to us and emotionally attune to us. Maybe we needed them to rub our back or to hold us, to comfort us. And they just couldn't do that for whatever reason. 
Now, I may have been physically there, or in some circumstances, you know, they weren't physically there. They were working. They were trying to do what they could to pay the bills, to keep everything rolling along in the best they could. Like I said, we could have been raised in an environment where everything was given to us that we needed, like clothing, food, transportation, maybe playing a competitive sport or access to great tutors. But the emotional side was just left off. If the child needed comforting or nurturing, being listened to, being validated, parents just didn't know how to do that, or they just didn't do that. And for this reason, the needs of the child are never fully met. And usually that child is going to grow up feeling somewhat empty. They might find themselves as an adult in an abusive or unhealthy relationship. And for others, they really struggle to get into any relationship at all out of fear that it will be just like that relationship they had when they were growing up. Now they can also find themselves in a healthy relationship. And usually this doesn't even make sense to them. And they're going to have a hard time maintaining that relationship with someone who has a more secure attachment style or came from a more emotionally available family environment. Now, like I said, focusing on childhood emotional neglect is what I want to do in this podcast episode because it is so hidden from us. I want to give it its own episode. And often that childhood emotional neglect, or sometimes it's abbreviated to CEN, it can be overlaid with abuse or physical neglect as well. There can be layers of unhealthy family dynamics on top of childhood emotional neglect, which I'm going to get into in later episodes. So again, I just want to acknowledge that there could be other co-occurring issues with childhood emotional neglect, and I'm just going to focus on CEN in this episode so it doesn't get lost among all the other things that could be happening. So when we grow up in an emotionally neglectful environment, it can cause us to believe that our thoughts, feelings, and desires just don't matter. And this can in turn cause us to question anything we've experienced and struggle to actually trust how we feel. We can even find it difficult to let people in because we're constantly worrying about what others think about us. Now we know that many high functioning and competent individuals actually have this in their background. They may wonder why they feel disconnected or empty. They sometimes wonder, shouldn't I be happier? These other people seem to have something that I'm missing. Or why doesn't my life feel more meaningful? These questions are often asked by individuals who believe they had a loving, well-meaning parents and who remember their childhoods as mostly happy and healthy. And they still are feeling something is missing. This can complicate things and often results in them blaming themselves, or if they're in an adult relationship, they can blame their relational partner for whatever does not feel right in their adult lives. They don't know what is playing out for them because they can't remember, or they're just not aware that these things should have been happening for them. And they don't understand often that what didn't happen in our childhood has as much or more power over who we become as an adult than any events that we actually do remember. There are consequences to childhood emotional neglect that often aren't recognized for years or decades down the road. Now, if you want to get into this a little bit deeper, one of the books that I typically start off recommending to clients who have this issue going on and are wanting to understand it better 
is the book Running on Empty by Janice Webb. And she had another companion book that came out, I want to say maybe in 2020 it came out, or maybe that's just when I read it, that is titled Running on Empty No More. So I I think those are great uh, companion books to dig in and expand your awareness around this, understanding how it happens, the ways that it shows up, and eventually how to heal this. Janice Webb says, quote, There is a good explanation for why emotional neglect has been so overlooked. It hides. It dwells in the sins of omission rather than commission. It's the white space in the family picture rather than the picture itself. It's often what was not said or observed or remembered from childhood rather than what was said, end quote. So like I said, not having emotional needs met throughout our childhood will leave the child growing up without a secure foundation on which to build themselves, to build a scaffolding for life. And they're going to struggle to know who they are or what they want. They will struggle to know what they feel or what their opinions are because they get stuck in the what my opinion should be. They may be lacking in basic life skills that other adults their age seem to have. And in other areas, they may seem overly independent. Now, there is a difference between independent versus neglect. You know, sometimes in adulthood, if things were neglected emotionally, we might look back and say, you know, my parents were raising very independent children. And I think the distinction between neglect and independence, usually the distinction is made when we're looking at the issues of togetherness and separateness. So I'll talk about this a little bit more when I get into a podcast episode I want to do on differentiation. It's where these concepts of togetherness and separateness come from. But basically the difference between being independent versus neglected comes down to the child being able to differentiate. They're able to become their own person and that is accepted and they can bring that self to the family and be part of the family and that self serves them when they're separate from. There's not issues of, you know, sometimes when we talk about family systems, again, I'm going to talk about that, but when we're looking at enmeshment, you know, that's too much togetherness, we would say, and not enough that doesn't allow for differentiation. Or if we come from disengaged family systems, it's too much separateness. And we'll usually, if we come from, you know, one of those family dynamics, we're going to struggle with issues around togetherness and separateness, which become pretty important in our adult relationships. Now, the importance of emotion in healthy parenting is best understood through attachment theory. And this is also something I'm going to go into more in depth in later episodes. But basically, attachment theory describes how our emotional needs for safety and connection are met by our parents from infancy on. Attachment theory started with John Bowlby, and he identified three essential emotional skills in parents. So these are things that should describe your parents in what we would term healthy and adaptive family systems. And in childhood emotional neglect, one or more of these were missing. So one of the essential needs 
or one of the essential skills that parents have is that this parent feels an emotional connection to the child. You know, they can just be holding the infant and they are feeling all sorts of emotions, just interacting, holding, caring, connecting with the child. Another essential skill is that the parent pays attention to the child and sees the child as a unique and separate person rather than an extension of themselves or a possession or a burden or something that is going to make that parent whole. And then the last skill that he identified is using this emotional connection and paying attention and attuning to the child, the parent responds competently to the child's emotional needs. Again, nobody's going to respond perfectly, but I think that's important to recognize that Bulby talked about competently, which isn't as high of a bar as perfectly. Now, there can be varying reasons why parents might emotionally neglect their kids. And I don't want to focus a lot on that topic because I really want to focus more on the childhood emotional neglect and how that impacts kids and into adulthood. But there are some reasons, you know, that parents could emotionally neglect their kids. The first one being parents were also emotionally neglected and they just simply don't know what they don't know. They don't know that this is something they should be doing differently. Another reason they might emotionally neglect their kids is they have a lot of kids. Now we're seeing in some families that the number of kids families are having is decreasing. It's on the decline. You know, some people question or have some concern about that fact. But the reality is when we have a lot of children, it can be very difficult to competently attune to the emotional needs of each child. Another reason is maybe there's an addiction in the family or parents are single. And for single parents, it can be overwhelming just to try to provide physically. And they're simply just too tired at the end of the day, or they're just not there physically because they're trying to provide for the physical needs. Can also be the anxiety of a parent or the depression of a parent. Maybe there's a dysfunctional marital relationship. Maybe parents are divorced. And this is requiring over-focus from the parent onto another issue that then takes away from what they can have available to give to their child. It can also be uh, coming from an enmeshment system, coming from a disengaged family system, What it boils down to is this chronic unavailability of parents in a child's life emotionally. So again, you know, sometimes we're tired as parents and we're not on our game and we're not competent on that evening or on that afternoon when they come home from school. But what we're looking at with childhood emotional neglect is this is chronic. This is pretty consistent over time, not a day or a week when the parent was wrapped up in some other project they had going on, but this is chronic and it's consistent. So what are some of the classic symptoms that you can be experiencing in adulthood that would lead us back to examine or evaluate childhood emotional neglect in your life? One of the classic symptoms is being a people pleaser. Also not having boundaries or being unable to say no, becoming easily upset or emotionally dysregulated, This can look both like easily getting overwhelmed and shutting down or outbursts of anger and frustration. 
being overly concerned with what others think, an inability to self-discipline or feel motivated, feeling emotionally empty, difficulty trusting others, or on the other hand, trusting too easily, appearing disconnected or disinterested over time. Again, this is where, you know, often for folks who were emotionally neglected as children, they can get into relationships. And like I said earlier, they can even get into some healthy relationships, but they're going to have a difficult time maintaining that over a period of time. So they can start to disconnect or they can start to appear disinterested over time in a relationship. They can disconnect from affection. They typically have some lower self-esteem. There's a high fear of rejection. And they have difficulty with self-expression. Like I said, there's a lack of differentiation, so they don't necessarily know who they are. There can be chronic guilt. Often, you know, kids have this way of internalizing what happened or making it about themselves. So if these needs aren't being met, and again, that's not maybe a conscious awareness. That would be more of that unconscious awareness. But they're just going to feel like some guilt. They're going to internalize that and integrate that as something is wrong with me. They can, you know, be quite self-critical, full of guilt and shame. They can fall in love quickly and fall out of love quickly. And then the last word is alexithymia, which means a poor understanding of emotions. And again, that makes sense because if you are emotionally neglected in childhood, it's going to be very difficult to understand emotions and how those work or how to read emotions as an adult. Now, childhood emotional neglect can feel different for everyone, and we're not going to check off every box. Our reasons for experiencing these feelings are unique to the details of our lives, but there's also common ground. There are some common ties for adults who were emotionally neglected as children. Patrick Tehan, who's also an LCSW, points out that in addition to the common list that you can find through a Google search, which, by the way, can look like a lot of other common lists of symptoms for other mental health issues. It'll produce a list, right? And it can be somewhat vague. And sometimes when we're just looking at a list, it can be difficult to connect the dots just by reading over the list. He talks about these other three symptoms of childhood emotional neglect that aren't as readily talked about or identified, but also go back to childhood emotional neglect. So the first one, is what he calls simply perception problems. I think of this one as really like a number one definitive issue about childhood emotional neglect. And I will say I haven't had a client yet, including myself, who experienced childhood emotional neglect and didn't struggle with perception problems. Now we could simply define childhood neglect as an abuse of perception. For children who lack connection with healthy caregivers, problems of perception involve how we perceive ourselves, how we perceive others, and how we perceive the chain of events and situations in the present, or how we think of things, how we interpret or find meaning in our present life. And, you know, typically when we're adults, how we are making sense of things or what, what sense we are making is based upon what happened to us in our past, i.e. our childhood. Patrick Tehan outlines what the problems of perception could look like. You know, so he gives an example. 
reading a work email too quickly. And maybe we're reading it from this neglected narrative. And we can tell that there's some emotions in this email. And we just are not sure how to perceive the emotions that are written in the email. So maybe we conclude that the team hates us or we really messed up really big. And then, you know, 10 minutes later, 30 minutes later, we go back to the email and we read it and we realize this wasn't even about me. They're talking about a team that I'm not even a part of. Another example he gives is maybe you go to a restaurant and you can hear laughter from a nearby table behind you and you sit down and your inner child starts to feel like maybe that laughter is about me somehow. We might even have an inner or an outer reaction to that if we're having a bad day. Now, sometimes I think the term that we're using currently is FOMO or fear of missing out, right? That perception of being excluded or unwelcome, that's a perception problem. Maybe we're feeling like we aren't enough or we're being rejected. And we can even confuse these feelings that we have, this inner reaction that we have, and we can project them even further into other situations. Now, sometimes this might be happening. Maybe you are being excluded from something. And sometimes with childhood emotional neglect, we can come across as being awkward, not knowing necessarily how to fit in or not feeling like this is really natural for me to know how to be accepted by others or to engage with others, which, you know, sometimes that leads to us maybe being left out. So it's not about whether or not it's actually happening. I think the important thing to know is something is getting triggered and we have to be able to identify that and to work with that. Now, I I think again, that FOMO, that fear of missing out gets talked about a lot. Like it's a, just an emotion like joy or sorrow or anger. It's, it's not, but I think it's a good example of how childhood emotional neglect can follow us into our adult lives and we are unable to differentiate or unable to determine if we want to go to something or if we don't want to go to something. And internally, it creates this insecurity, maybe emptiness. And we just have a hard time determining for myself or for ourselves what choice we should make. And so we revert to, well, I don't want to miss out So I'll go. And and sometimes we're neglecting other things in order to make that decision. Now, it can also look like maybe two people at a party or two people at work who are talking. And again, we get this reaction from our inner child who reads them as, you know, why aren't they talking to me? They never sit and talk to me this way. Maybe we start to feel like, am I, you know, am I a turnoff to other people? Do I, do they not see me? Do they like, is something wrong with me? Is this about them? So we can struggle to know or to perceive what is mine, what is theirs, what is just neutral. We might find ourselves overly empathetic when someone is in pain or distress. We might even believe that somehow we're the cause of this or that it's our responsibility to fix this. And this, again, is just something that happens when there's childhood emotional neglect. Often this can happen too if there was parentification along with the emotional neglect or enmeshment or both. Sometimes all of those things factor in together. Perception problems can also be subtle or not so subtle misreading of things. In our childhood, if we're emotionally neglected, 
We typically didn't learn that we could seek clarification or we could check things out. What might seem like facts to us may actually be a misreading of events that come from not getting what we needed from our caregivers. Like I said, sometimes what we are reading or perceiving is based in reality, but when we are approaching things from our trauma system, it's also looking to confirm that we're not safe and we're not aware that healing requires us to reclaim our perception and to see things in a more nuanced, less black and white way. Now, I think for most people, sometimes we're excluded and sometimes we're included. If I was emotionally neglected as a child, I say that like I wasn't, I was. But when there's childhood emotional neglect, we're going to remember more the times we were excluded and we might even miss and not even remember the times we were included. Sometimes we weren't safe. Sometimes we were. It's not one or the other. There might be more of one than the other, but usually these things coexisted. And when we're viewing things in a black and white perspective, we're more likely out of our window of tolerance. Our behavior in these types of situations can make sense when we start looking at and understanding how we grew up and how we learned to be from our childhood. Now, after my last episode released, I had a listener ask, like, what does it look like if somebody comes from a more healthy family system? Like, what is there a checklist for those people? Well, sure there is. So some of these sound like the opposite of the other list of symptoms that I gave you. For example, they'll have a more balanced self-esteem. They're going to have a level of independence and autonomy. They're more likely to be resilient when going through challenges or struggles. They can manage impulses or their emotions. They can have long-term relationships, long-term friendships. They have good social skills. They have good coping skills, ways to deal with things. And they're much more able to handle issues around trust, intimacy, and affection. So if we had been born into a family where parents were well-adjusted, well-rounded, emotionally balanced humans, the emotional reactiveness is not going to be as intense. We wouldn't see such extreme mood swings and we'd be more likely to read behaviors and relationships correctly. Now, I don't want you to feel shame if this describes you because as infants and children, we didn't have a say as to how our home felt or how things were handled. When we're neglected emotionally, we just are going to carry some biases into our adulthood that we're going to have to work out once we are aware that they're causing some problems. We're going to have to work on these perception problems. And as adults, we need to become very aware of how quick we can be to jump to conclusions or maybe how impulsive we can be with our decision-making because this is a sign of where our perception problems originate in childhood. Now, sometimes, you know, if we were emotionally neglected as children, it's kind of a mixed bag as to how this can play out, right? For some kids who are emotionally neglected in childhood, they end up kind of being the black sheep of the family, or they kind of end up being scapegoated by the family. For other kids, they take the opposite route and they're very well behaved. They get very good grades. 
They're just so good and so obedient and so responsible. What we need to take in around childhood emotional neglect is that whatever your experience was as a child, we had to accept whatever our parents' interpretation of reality was, and therefore we lost our own innate intuition. We lost our connection to our inner compass and our gut reactions that we would have needed to contradict our parents' version of reality. Sometimes in our teen years, we might start to push away against our parents' reality. We might try to engage in some self-exploration, but typically because childhood emotional neglect is so hidden, even from ourselves, we don't really actually know how to explore ourselves or begin to differentiate in a way that isn't just the opposite of what my parents wanted. I used to work with teens who were court ordered for one reason or another, they were court ordered to treatment. And, you know, one of the things that I would talk with them about, or we would talk about in a group setting is just this, like these choices that they felt like they were making. They, you know, they would own that and say like, this is what I want. And I'm thinking, I don't think you actually want to be court ordered to be here in this group right now. And I would try to point out to them that like, these aren't self choices. I don't think the self actually gets us into difficult, negative places. I think that's a coping mechanism maybe, but many of these decisions that they thought that they were making were actually just opposite from what their parents wanted them to do. So again, parents were still dictating what they were doing. It was just the opposite. And while sure, it might hurt parents, ultimately they were the ones who were hurting themselves the most. Now the second symptom of childhood emotional neglect that Patrick Tehan talks about and one that's often overlooked or not talked about is compromised emotional imbalance. That can be a mouthful. So this is about basic innate human emotions. Now, depending on what resource you're pulling, you know, there are some experts that will say there's a range of six to 10, usually somewhere in there, basic human emotions that all humans are born with. Paul Ekman identified six basic emotions. He described them as anger, fear, disgust, happiness, sadness, and surprise. You could also look up Paul Pluchik, who came up with four pairs in a similar way. He talked about them in terms of polar opposites. So joy to sadness, anger to fear, trust to distrust, and surprise to anticipation. I think if I'm remembering correctly, Pia Melody talked about nine human emotions. John Bradshaw in his book, Homecoming, talked about these primary innate human emotions in his book. And if you're familiar with a feelings will, or if you do a quick Google search of a feelings will, you're gonna see a version of these basic emotions at the center of the will. And then they start to fan out into more defined and nuanced nameable feelings that can help us connect these innate feelings to our experience. So again, that can be helpful when we're trying to work through our childhood emotional neglect. And I'll talk about that at the end of the podcast episode, but I want to talk right now about what it looks like to have compromised emotional imbalance. So again, we have these innate emotions and as it sounds in this symptom, they're compromised. They are not balanced. They are out of balance. So if we take 
hate or anger, that type of emotion. This is going to include things like fury, outrage, wrath, sadness can be another innate emotion that is identified. This includes things like grief, sorrow, gloom, melancholy. Fear is another innate emotion that's typically identified. That includes things like anxiety, apprehension, nervousness, joy, things like enjoyment, happiness, relief, interest, things like acceptance, friendliness, and trust. Surprise, things like shock, astonishment, and amazement. And then the last one, disgust, things we find repulsive. Oh, I lied. And one more, shame. Things like guilt and embarrassment, chagrin, and remorse. Now, in my last podcast episode, I talked about hypoarousal or going into disconnect, disengage, freeze, or dissociation. And I got some interest in my statements about this when I talked about dissociation being a state where we might leave our bodies or become disembodied. This is also, I think, important to our emotional imbalance symptom. So emotionally unregulated adults are beyond what a child's nervous system can handle. So freezing in these situations is typically what that child's system is going to do. And freezing isn't simply waiting for the storm to pass. It's not just that experience. It's also a strategy of repressing or burying emotions such as shame or fear or anger and then waiting for the storm to pass. Now, I'm not saying it's like in a sequence where it all happens at once. Maybe we're holding our breath. We don't want to exist. I have intense, huge feelings that I'm trying to push down and ignore in this moment of not feeling safe. And all childhood emotional neglect survivors have their own versions of these responses where they kind of sever the connection to these innate basic emotions for now and dissociate the other four strategies. So we're in a free state. We dissociate from the ability to fight or flee or cry or to submit, which is the fawning response. And so we dissociate from these other four strategies and we also bury these innate basic human emotions. So again, if this has been a pattern in our childhood, if the adults they depended on were dysregulated or unsafe or not present or just not emotionally present, that's going to be a pattern that we have probably repeated who knows how many times since toddlerhood. Now, I also, in my last episode, talked about how we start to live in our heads and we leave our bodies. So in essence, I'm saying when we leave our body, we're leaving the emotions and we're leaving the emotional body where we're integrated in these basic emotions, which is what leads us to live as disembodied individuals. And so what does being in our head look like when we're navigating other people and others' emotions? Well, I mean, we might have fights in our head with them that we never actually vocalize. We could get stuck in ruminating just going over and over and over something. We're thinking about an emotional problem instead of feeling the problem. 
if it's an emotional problem, thinking about it isn't necessarily going to get us where we need to go. Sometimes this leads us to what the term is called analysis paralysis, where I'm overly analyzing and it leads to some paralysis. Maybe I'm replaying things, but I'm replaying them in a black and white thinking kind of place. So let's say during development, or let's say this 20 year span from birth to 20 years of human development, where we have emotionally unavailable caregivers or unattuned caregivers who themselves are repressing in a million feelings that they didn't get to have attuned to, this just becomes normal, right? It just becomes part of the game of life. However, the emotions don't fully go away. We are just disconnected from them. And if we've done this enough, if this has just been normalized, it becomes habituated to where we don't even know how to connect to these emotions in a way that will serve us in a more natural and biological way. So let's say our seven-year-old self had to displace and disconnect from some emotions. Let's say fear and anger, surprise, shame and disgust. The problem is we can't just disconnect from the emotions that are connected to our pain or our neglect. When we disconnect from one emotion in order to protect ourselves, the others get compromised as well. We cannot disconnect the shame and fear and sadness, but hold on to joy or hold on to interest or hold on to disgust. Our emotions just don't work like that. Now, like I said, I did have a listener from my last episode ask, what does somebody who has a secure attachment and a solid sense of self look like? So I want to talk about that um, here, what the emotions might look like for somebody who was attuned to competently, whose parents did meet their emotional needs enough. So let's take from the previous episode where I talked about the window of tolerance and let's talk about an individual who's well-adjusted. Now I will say sometimes these people tend to stump us if we come from childhood emotional neglect backgrounds, but you know, they do exist. Sometimes I will say, I don't know where they hang out or where they live. And I probably wouldn't recognize them if I met them, but I do hear that they're out there. So let's take somebody who comes from a securely attached family system. They're well-adjusted, they're well-rounded. And to make it easy, let's look at it through the lens of a neurotypical person who grew up with attuned and healthy parents, so there's no childhood CPTSD. But they are human, so life hasn't been perfect. But overall, they got their needs met during development, and they don't carry other diagnoses like bipolar, or they're they're not on the spectrum, they're not ADHD. We would see this well-adjusted person, their connection to these innate emotions would hover around this ideal capacity in their life. So when difficult or distressing situations come up in their present life, they're going to have an appropriate range of emotion and a reasonable amount of the emotion for that moment. When stuff comes up in this person's life, the emotions will serve them at the appropriate time. So for many of us childhood trauma survivors or childhood emotional neglect survivors, we could find these individuals boring. We might read them as having too little emotion, but that would be if we're used to having too much emotion or if there was, you know, a lot of just neglect, we would 
just be confused or confounded by their range and their ability to connect with their emotion. So if we start running down the list of those innate basic emotions, what would that look like for the person well-adjusted, well-rounded, coming from a family who did attune to their emotional needs? Well, they would have an appropriate amount of shame and remorse for mistakes that they make. They're able to apologize without becoming consumed by their shame. Their remorse doesn't put them in isolation for a week. They don't want to die from the self-disgust, but they can acknowledge regret and integrate the experience as a life lesson. A well-adjusted, secure person can experience joy and spontaneity and excitement, and they can be fully present for celebrations. Or they can really dig into a vacation and de-stress, relax. Sometimes with childhood emotional neglect, it, you know, if there's that anxiety, that feeling of emptiness, relaxing, de-stressing, they don't know how to do that, right? Because they're kind of always revved. They're always kind of have this motor going. And so going on vacation, you know, they're, they're not going to recognize that need to maybe disconnect, de-stress, relax. Not saying that you can't go do fun excursions when you're on vacation, but they wouldn't really relaxing, de-stressing. That's not necessarily going to make sense to them. They can feel fully ecstatic when they have a big win in life like maybe they're buying a house or they bought themselves a new car. They can feel surprised or scared. Maybe something catches them off guard, but it doesn't then turn to anger. They can quickly maybe find the humor in what just happened. When they feel sadness, they can allow themselves to move through that sadness. They can allow themselves to feel that and move through it without becoming highly reactive or even suicidal. They can cry or they can vent to a caring person. Secure people can be emotionally present for the passing of a pet or a loved one without totally shutting down or becoming very dysregulated. Now, again, it's going to affect them because nobody is immune to grief and loss, but they will move through that and giving themselves permission to feel what they feel. They can go through a breakup and feel sad and heartbroken and still somewhat function in their life. Again, they may not be as functional as usual. If you knew them well, you might could see that things are a little bit off. And you know, if you knew them well, you might know that they went through a breakup, they're feeling sad, they're feeling heartbroken, but they aren't operating with their fear or shame. They're not feeling worthless or seeing the breakup as proof that they're not a worthy or lovable person. They can have appropriate anger, Maybe enough to tell somebody off to set this boundary and set it very firmly while maintaining control, but not so much anger that they freak out or completely lose it or lose sleep about how angry they are. Anger instead is a guide for them, but not something they get stuck in. And when they're feeling interest, they can maybe notice that Something is off. Maybe it's time to go to school. Maybe it's time to change careers. Maybe it's time to leave this job and look for a new job. And they can notice that. They can put in a plan and they can execute the plan and make a switch without a lot of life disruption. Because they don't exist in this limited range of interest, they don't, in essence, feel stuck with what they originally chose. 
they can choose something and if it's not working, they can notice that and move on to something else that might seem interesting to them. They typically don't experience powerlessness or their inner critic telling them like you made this mistake and now you're gonna have to pay for it for the rest of your life. They tend to be more open to experiences and risks that somebody with childhood emotional neglect just couldn't be open to. That would be very intolerable for them. And then lastly, with disgust, disgust is an important emotion, actually, because disgust really pertains to our worth and our value and our safety. So our ability to feel disgust alerts us to red flags. You know, we might notice unhealthy behaviors in others. You know, if I'm hanging out with a group of friends and they're not very nice and they're kind of catty and what gets talked about is typically some gossip about other people. I might feel some disgust around that and just be like, yeah, that wasn't really fun for me. That wasn't something that I'm interested in doing in my free time. We can sense typically a lack of others' authenticity. Maybe we notice misalignment between what somebody says and what they do. So what keeps a person stuck in this emotional imbalance typically is unprocessed family of origin issues and then combined with other things that happened in our life into our adult life. Now, the third symptom that Patrick Tahan references is what he calls a vacuum relational experience. So this isn't, don't think of this as like a vacuum that we clean with, but vacuum meaning the absence of air in a defined space. So he talks about how, you know, on earth, we have an atmosphere and gravity that keeps things grounded and connected in space. Whereas in space, an object tends to be isolated and floats from a lack of immediate connecting forces, right? Or we would describe this as being untethered. So when you think about the vacuum relational experience, think of that word untethered. Now we can become untethered as children because when we had to lose the relational part of ourselves, that feeling of separateness set in too early. So, you know, as we're growing and developing as a child, we start to exhibit signs of separating. So even two-year-olds, you know, saying no, which isn't much of a separation. And for the most part with two-year-olds, there's still a high need for togetherness because, well, they're two. But when the separateness is threatening, it can start to make differentiation difficult. Or like I said before, if togetherness is overdone, this would look like some enmeshment. Separation in enmeshment is not permitted. And that's also going to make differentiation difficult. So it's difficult for us to develop as a person. The person we are because of these issues, maybe other issues as well, but what ends up happening is we start to become untethered. Again, like I talked about in childhood emotional neglect, we don't have this foundation that is being built within us of the core self. And so we don't know who we are. We don't know how we feel. We don't know what we think or if what we think is right. And this can put us in some hypo arousal where we start to feel disconnected. We start to feel a little bit lost untethered. So for the child who's emotionally neglected, when they start to feel that separation from others and from themselves, 
separation from their emotional perspectives and from not being on the same page as others, that's going to really kind of put them in that hypo arousal. And they're not going to really feel grounded. Grounding might be difficult because again, they're kind of floating, they're untethered. And if we combine this with disconnection from healthy caregivers and the result is this vacuum relational experience. So we're disconnected from our first symptom, which is the problems with perception and we're compromised emotionally. We're imbalanced emotionally. We maybe are living in our head. We're disconnected from our emotions. And because of this, sometimes we get feedback from others about how we're showing up or how we feel to them. This can really be disorienting because it's news to us. This can catch us off guard or result in us feeling greatly misunderstood. Maybe we're being told that we come across as intense, but because of our disconnection or our disembodiment, we aren't aware of how we feel inside. And we believe that if my external behaviors are my true emotions, doesn't occur to me that maybe I'm hiding from myself, but others can still pick up on this. They can sense it. They can feel it. Or maybe the, the other is true. Maybe we appear to be very chill, like not much rattles us. And this doesn't make sense to us because inside we are all sorts of torn up. Maybe we have this desire to connect with others, but we are unsure of how to make that happen. Maybe we're unsure, like, do I seem approachable? Do I not seem approachable? Do I seem interested? Or does everybody just see me as uncaring or aloof? So when we're untethered from ourselves and we start to hear from somebody else how they perceive us, like I said, this can be profoundly disorienting. And typically we aren't even sure how to make sense of this information or process this information because we don't trust our feelings. We may not even notice we have feelings, but we have also learned that we can't necessarily trust what is going on for other people or how somebody else perceives this situation. Now, I have worked with a lot of couples over the years where this in and of itself is a high source of conflict. Their perceptions don't align. Maybe that's a different perception of a person that they both know or one or both of their family of origin or a situation that arose. And so, like I said, it's really about how we have this symptom that causes us to dissociate when others don't experience the world like we do, or when people give us feedback about our emotions that is brand new to us. It can feel actually like a betrayal from others or a betrayal of yourself and betrayal of your reality because we don't know who, if anyone, we can trust We haven't learned that we can trust ourselves and we haven't learned that we can trust another person in our life, say a romantic partner or significant other. And the threat turns into this mismatched perspective instead of connecting it back to our childhood emotional neglect. So when the symptom of losing one's reality and going into this relational vacuum is present and we're not feeling supported by our partner, which can feel like our partner is also not available to us, which would be another trigger back into that family of origin. Again, all of this is very disorienting. We can feel very lost, very untethered because what we needed was somebody who validated what we were feeling and what we are thinking as a child. 
so that we start to form that sense of self so that we can pull from that in our adult life. And when that didn't happen, we are thinking the connection in my adult relationship is going to be that everything matches. We agree on everything. We see the world the same. We see people the same. And that's not really necessary for adult relationships. We don't need to connect over sameness. Sometimes our emotionally neglected childhoods can feel like one long gaslighting experience, which is what starts to condition us to go into these specific dissociative vacuums. I remember once I was an adult and I think I had my kids were older, like teen into maybe my youngest was around 10. And we were having a family dinner at my house. My mom was there and I, I don't know what got her talking about this, but she started wandering down memory lane and she was talking about how difficult Saturdays were for her. Now, I had never heard her acknowledge this. I knew growing up that Saturdays were a very difficult day often. But she was acknowledging, you know, that Saturdays were very difficult because she would see all of these neighbors whose dads or husbands were home and they were, you know, mowing the lawn, taking care of the house, doing the projects that were needed to keep things moving along. And that she could feel really upset by that because, you know, my dad was never home. And even when he was home, like he was not aware that anything needed to happen at home or that he might need to make that happen. And so she was saying, you know, it was just really hard for me. Saturdays were very triggering for me. And so, you know, I tried to make the best of it, which I am sitting there listening to her because again, I, she's acknowledging something that I have some awareness of. Saturdays were hard at our house. But when she's saying, you know, and so I tried to make the best of it. And so often I would pack a picnic lunch and I would say, let's go to the park and we would go do something fun that day. We would spend the day at the park. So I didn't have to, you know, hear the sounds of the lawnmowers and all the work being done for my neighbors, you know, by their husbands. And that would just make me so depressed. And so instead we would go to the park and we would have a great day. And I'm sitting here, you know, I'm the second of six kids and I'm thinking to myself, I never remember going to the park with my mom, let alone her packing a picnic. Like most Saturdays resulted in conflict, not between my mom and my dad, because she was right. My dad was never home on Saturday, but between mom and one of the kids, whoever, it was kind of a rotation of who that conflict she engaged with. So there was a lot of conflict, yelling that could happen for hours. And then typically she'd go in her room and shut the door. And the rest of us, if it wasn't one of us that had been on the receiving end of the conflict, the rest of us just kind of hit out. And there was tension. It was uncomfortable. That's how I remember my Saturdays. And I didn't think it would be much different for the younger ones. Like once I had moved out of the house and they were of that age, like... I would, I was pretty sure that, you know, if my mom was packing a picnic and taking him to the park, I would have heard about that or I would have known about that. And so for me, that was a very disorienting to have her wander down this memory lane in a way that I'm like, I have no recollection of what she's talking about. The way she is describing Saturdays 
doesn't resonate with anything within me. In fact, you know, when I moved out, got married and started having my own kids, I would just feel Saturday and then Sunday, which my dad was around more on Sunday. So that's typically when my parents would fight. I had a lot of triggers just about the fact that it was Saturday or Sunday. And I would, you know, sometimes say to my husband, like, why do I feel like, you know, my stomach would get all in knots. I would feel like I'm walking on eggshells. You know, like that was a typical thing that I had to work through as an adult in my own family that I was creating in my own marriage and recognize that there was nothing particular about Saturday or Sunday that would make it more likely to erupt in conflict. It was just a day of the week. That was just a trigger from my childhood that I didn't need to walk on eggshells around in my adult life. And so, you know, it was, I don't even know the emotions I was feeling as I was listening to my mom talk about this. And there were other grandkids, you know, my siblings, kids who were at the house and they were, you know, running. I mean, they were outside playing. And I just thought, I I just need to, I just need to walk away. And so I got up and went out to my front yard and just kind of sat on the porch out there. was just watching my nieces and nephews playing and, you know, maybe five minutes after I was out there, my youngest sibling came out, my brother, and he came out and sat down next to me on the front porch. And we were both just kind of watching the kids. He had some kids out there who were young and running around, and we we're both just kind of watching them, not saying much. And then my brother said to me, do you remember that? Is that something, what mom's talking about? Is that something you remember? And I said, no, I don't ever remember that happening in my childhood. And he said, Okay, because like he's like, you know, sometimes I think maybe that happened for my older siblings, but he was like, that definitely didn't happen in my childhood. And I just said, I don't know whose memory lane mom is wandering down, but it sure sounds nice. Sure sounds like that would have been a nicer option for us than what our reality was. And, you know, we didn't say much else. It was nice, I will say, to have somebody who could validate that moment for me. Like what I was feeling was overwhelming enough that I was like, I need to walk outside. I just need to walk away from this and walk outside because I, I couldn't even tell you all of the emotions that were going on inside of me other than overwhelm, walk outside, walk away from this. And so that one was a nice example where my brother, my youngest brother had, my youngest sibling had the similar emotional feeling listening to that and you know just kind of followed me outside and was able to comment on it ask a question about it that we could at least validate that for each other now another example from my childhood you know would be hearing my mom talk about the problems in her marriage to my dad and hearing about financial betrayals hearing from my mom how lonely and unhappy she was in her marriage as a child you know, my mom sharing her emotions, they were too big for me and they were not something I had the power to do anything about. So having her share her emotions with me tended to crowd out any emotions I had of my own. Hearing how, you know, my dad ruined her life, how his children were right to really hate him, much of which was actually very valid, but it was not valid how she discussed it with us or how she handled it or didn't protect us from him or from these things. 
but also wanting us to pretend to the neighbors, to the people at church, to outside, you know, even to our grandparents, to our aunts and uncles, we had to pretend everything was fine. There was nothing to see here. We were a healthy, functional family. And because my mom was a smart woman, she wasn't content to know that we knew we were putting on a facade or that we knew we had to pretend to be a happy family. Instead, we had to actually convince her that we actually believed our performance, that our performance wasn't actually a performance, and that we didn't actually know that we were not, in fact, a happy family, and there were some serious issues going on in our home. Now, that is a very big disconnection between reality and the symptom of going into that dissociative place, that relational vacuum experience, where it was difficult to determine what's real, who's safe, what's good, what's not. You know, often I'll just reference this as that was a mind fuck, but instead I'll use Patrick's term. That was a relational vacuum experience. And all I'm saying is that we really shouldn't need, you know, when, when we're wanting in, in these adult relationships, when we're wanting this agreement, we're wanting this, it's not necessarily validation. Like I feel like in that story that I told my brother and I were able to validate for each other. And maybe that was because, you know, we were at two ends of the continuum of ages among the siblings where I'm much older. I have, you know, teenagers and my brother has very young children. So we were kind of at opposite ends of that continuum in our placement as kids in our family, birth order placement. We were able to validate that for each other. But I think often I see this with couples that I work with. They want sameness. They want to see it exactly the same. And, you know, going back to that, like thinking that safety or connection in our adult relationships would be always agreeing and seeing things the same. Like I said, that's not really necessary in adult relationships because what I'm saying is we shouldn't need that level of confirmation as much as we would in our adult years if our emotions had been tended to and attuned to throughout our childhood and young adult years. We don't have to lose our truth or our perceptions when our partner doesn't sign off on them. It is okay to have different perspectives. And often connection happens in the differences, not just in the sameness. Sometimes I think, you know, if if I wanted my partner to just be a replica of me, how would I know if I actually loved my partner or if I just loved the version of him that reminded me of me, right? That can look like some narcissistic love, like, oh, I really love you because you're so much like me. And so instead, often those moments of connection happen in the differences. Now, that doesn't mean that our partner is 100% accurate and we're 100% inaccurate. The vacuum relational symptom is just a sign that's telling you you're triggered. It means that when we notice this vacuum response, this feeling of starting to get lost, maybe starting to float, become untethered, We need to see this as a trigger and explore the triggers at a deeper level that can actually help us figure out if this childhood trigger belongs in this current scene or not. 
we might be able to stay clearly in the present so the vacuum symptom can resolve itself once both the inner adult and the inner child start to feel more secure within themselves and there's more integration so that not being on the same page with others doesn't feel like danger. Okay, so how do we start to process? If you're resonating with things in this episode, how do we start to process our childhood emotional neglect? Well, I'm going to say, and again, this is my bias, not just because I'm a therapist, but also because I've worked with therapists as a client. So I think these are complex dynamics and it's helpful to get a therapist. You're probably going to also need to do some group work, interpersonal group work and experiential group work, like where you're able to tell your story and really let others experience you and give you feedback about what they're noticing and what they're feeling, what they're picking up on from you. You might also need to do some anger work and grief work in order to bring yourself back into an emotional balance. The sign of being emotionally unbalanced really is this sign that there's unfinished business with our family of origin system. And we need our day in court about this. We need fair and honest observers. And this just isn't something we can do in a quick five or six sessions with a therapist. It's not something we can journal and meditate our way through, although both of those things might be helpful in the process. I also recommend some trauma modality work, things like lifespan integration or EMDR with a good clinician, somatic experiencing, and then again, you know, the group work that's aimed at childhood trauma work. It's heavy lifting for a heavy problem. Now, I also often get asked, often from clients, how do I handle things with my parents once I start to identify childhood emotional neglect? And my response is typically there are no real shoulds around how we engage with our parents going forward. Now, I realize there's a lot of strong opinions out there about what you should do and how you should do that. There's plenty of people who will tell you to forgive, which I find usually for them means letting go of whatever your feelings are and just re-engaging with your parents and not having hurt feelings. I don't understand how that process works. So one thing that I usually advise is to not confront your parents, thinking that this is going to solve the problem. I just need to talk to them about that. I might have shared this before, but you know, when I was in my bachelor level social work class, I took a, I don't remember what the class was, but it's a bachelor level social work class. And they were talking about, they must've been talking about different types of families differently than we learn about it in grad school, but they, they must've been talking about it. And they were talking about dysfunctional families and maybe a list of dysfunctional families. And it was like the clouds parted, the sun shone down. And I had this revelation of like, oh my gosh, my family was dysfunctional. And it was some relief to me to realize this, like so many things started to make sense to me. Dots started to connect. I thought, well, this is helpful. This is so helpful for me to know that my family is dysfunctional. And so I came home from college and told my mom, thinking she would feel just as relieved as I had been when I learned that my family of origin was dysfunctional. And needless to say, that was not my mom's 
my response was not my mom's response. And I think it was a three or four hour fight where I had to convince her that of course I did not believe my family was dysfunctional and I don't even know why I would see it that way. But not just say those things, I had to convince her that what I had experienced wasn't real. So again, I don't necessarily see that confronting parents typically will go well. Typically, it's going to catch them off guard and they'll find a way to spin the situation so they're the victims. And once again, you'll probably feel undermined or dismissed, not seen, maybe gaslit. So I do tell clients that, you know, if their parents continue to show they are not equipped to navigate emotions, whether it's their emotions or your emotions, and they are not equipped to navigate conflict in healthy ways, this isn't going to suddenly change when there is even more on the line and you're starting to see the dysfunction and the impact it has had on you. Sometimes I get that feeling of wanting to talk through things with our parents in order to change our past or in order to get some closure, but we really can't do that. And it's important to remember that even though we're not responsible for causing our wounds, we can take responsibility for healing them. That's all we can do for those childhood wounds is take responsibility for healing them. Now, I do believe it's important for individuals who experience childhood emotional neglect to identify just how this impacted them and the ways that it continues to show up in your adult life and your adult relationships. Sometimes it's tempting to minimize the impact on us and have empathy for our parents and their situations that led to them emotionally neglecting us. But when we have more compassion for our parents than we do for our younger self and what was missing that they so deserve to have, that will be a barrier to our healing. Sometimes our coping mechanisms for emotional neglect show up in ways that are praised by society too. And we end up adopting these qualities into our identity, even priding ourselves on them when really we were just doing our best in a bad situation and our way of coping was to be a very good, responsible, independent kid. Now you might've been a good kid and you still may be a good person. And you also may need to recognize that part of being such a great kid was a response to childhood emotional neglect. Now, I think the third thing that's important to remember when we're working on healing childhood emotional neglect is that we are prone to create dysfunctional patterns as adults. The affection we lacked in childhood can show up in our adult relationships. Maybe this looks like falling in love too quickly. That can take us into some love addiction relationships. We may also fall out of love too quickly. For some individuals, they avoid love altogether. We would call that love avoidant. I think for other individuals that I work with, sometimes we're looking at examples of abundance versus scarcity. You know, what they experienced was scarcity and what they're trying to create for themselves and in their relationships is a feeling of abundance. So sometimes I work with individuals who, you know, maybe once they start having kids, they feel that scarcity. Like my partner in loving our children 
that's less love that they have for me. And that makes sense if we're coming at this from a scarcity lens. But when we're looking at this through the abundance lens, them having love or excitement or attunement to their children doesn't take away from us, doesn't mean that we are going to get less of that. Again, maybe that's what that looked like in childhood. If you know we had some sibling rivalries or maybe we're aware there's just too many kids for my parents to attune to, hopefully we can talk about that with our partner if that's coming up. Sometimes that happens with kids. Sometimes it happens with friends. You know, if my partner goes out, hangs out with friends, I don't know what to do with myself when I'm left home alone. Maybe I feel like, you know, I know my partner was excited to go out and have a night with the guys or a night with the girls. But is that excitement also about leaving me? Did they want to leave me? And so again, sometimes these dynamics can get pretty complex and we have to recognize these triggers started in our own family of origin and they don't necessarily translate to our current relationships. We do need to seek clarification. We do need to be able to, you know, check out those feelings that we're having, share those feelings, not in a way that necessarily means my partner can't go out or my partner needs to be less affectionate with the children, just simply in a way that I am reassured that I can then reassure myself that there is plenty to go around and that I no longer have to live in that mode of scarcity. So how can we start to recover from childhood emotional neglect? I think one of the first things that I talk about with clients is to start noticing and tracking the feelings and emotions they have. So, you know, we might want to start tracking. I mean, typically in my view, the feelings, kind of these body sensations happen first, but our awareness may not happen until a behavior happens that we go, oh, wow, I'm frustrated. I want to eventually work with clients on being able to, you know, kind of create that inner observer who notices the body sensation notices that feeling that originates in the body, where that is in the body, and then be able to kind of track it through. Maybe there was a sensation in the body and my inner observer noticed that. And then interesting that my brain tuned into that and had this reaction, right? Like, ooh, this is bad. Oh, this, there's not enough for you. Something like that, right? And then it resulted in me feeling sad and lonely and mistrustful, that type of stuff. You know, I want to be able to increase our awareness and our feelings around awareness around our feelings and our emotions. So one way to start that, you know, if you're listening, you can Google feelings chart and you can start tracking your feelings every day. Now I know it can be really hard at first. A lot of my clients report that the feelings that they think they're feeling are just too overwhelming or too scary, too big. And that's okay. Maybe start with the easier ones. Maybe if we start with feeling, you know, the feelings of tired or sad, worried, those can be easier to begin with. So, you know, find some feelings that maybe aren't so charged for you and start there. Because the truth is, if we've been raised in a really emotionally neglectful environment, our feelings have been ignored for so long, it is totally normal to not even know how you really feel. So give yourself a chance to figure it out. 
get to know who you truly are, what's happening in your body. Because once that part gets easier, the next step is to go on and start describing the feeling word that you selected without using that exact word. So for example, maybe I say, oh, I'm feeling energized and excited, somewhat bubbly. And that would be how I would describe the word happy or that feeling word happy without using the term happy. You know, sometimes we can get stuck in what I call the Dr. Seuss feelings, mad, sad, bad, glad. And so again, can I start to enhance my emotional vocabulary? Can I start to, you know, take a basic emotion like happy and describe it without using actually the word happy? So you can kind of see where we're going with that. That all starts to give us more language to start to articulate what's going on inside of us. And then the third step is to start noticing your needs and your desires. Sometimes we're told like needs are necessary, you know, like uh, clothing, food, shelter, that type of stuff. But desires, okay, now we're just getting a little greedy here. I don't think that. I think needs and desires are both an important part of developing ourselves. So when any needs or desires we have are constantly ignored, we can start to begin to believe that our needs or our desires are just too much and that something is really wrong with us for actually needing such things. But when we take time to acknowledge our needs that we truly have, because we all do, and by the way, in the beginning, this is usually easiest if we do it on our own not sitting with our partner. But usually when we start to acknowledge these needs that we truly have, sometimes it can leave us feeling extremely vulnerable. So again, just make sure you're protecting yourself. You're doing it at your own pace, but you're also stretching yourself in ways that you're growing and developing. I think I've shared on um, the podcast before that, you know, one of the, this was several years ago, one of my daughters pointed out, I think it was coming up on, Either Mother's Day or my birthday, they tend to be within a couple of days of each other. And so I think they were asking me, you know, what do you want for Mother's Day or what do you want for your birthday? Something like that. Something around that, right? And I said, what are my options? And my one daughter just said, mom, you say that a lot when we ask you what you want. And that's weird. That is a weird answer. Like, why do you respond by saying, what are my options? Now, this is one of my daughters who has zero bashfulness about asking for what she wants or needs. So of course for her, this makes zero sense for her that I would be like, well, what are my options? Now, sometimes you might find when you're noticing a need, you're going to need to explore options. Maybe options that didn't exist for you as a child. That I think that was for me where that even in my adult years, I wasn't even aware of it until she was like, mom, that you say that all the time. That's so weird. And I wasn't aware that I said that, but it totally made sense when I put myself back as a kid growing up, like what are my options was safer than asking for what I wanted and being told, you know, I wasn't grateful or I wasn't connected to the reality of our family circumstances, that I was vain. I got told that sometimes. And so I think that like, what are my options protected me somewhat so that I knew kind of what ballpark I needed to be looking at. And so again, it can, you know, 
be something that we have to explore options that maybe didn't exist for us as a kid. But maybe we can start to feel them now. We can start to envision them now. We can start to imagine them now. And we can start to plan for how we meet our needs. Now, if feeling your needs seems to make you too needy or wrong or selfish, sometimes it's helpful to imagine someone else in our life that we're close to that has that same exact need that we identified. Often when we grow up without emotional support, we are very caring and aware of other people. So it can be helpful to move past these needs of feeling you know, that we're too needy or selfish to simply pull it away from ourselves and put it onto someone else that we care about and consider if they had that need, would we think that that was too much? Would we think that they were being selfish or needy? Would we be able to assist or support them in their need? Now, more than likely, our answer to all of that would be, no, it's not too much. And yes, I'm happy to help them. Or yes, that you have my support. So by slowly allowing ourselves to accept our own needs, we can begin to change our belief that they aren't important or that they're just too much for others to deal with. Another way we begin to heal from childhood emotional neglect is self-care. Now, I, I know I talk about this a lot. I did a podcast episode about it not too long ago. But when it comes to healing from childhood emotional neglect, self-care is our way of telling our body and soul that we care about them, that they are important. And we can start by first recognizing if there are ways that we're neglecting either our physical or our emotional well-being and consider some ways we might be willing to start working on that. If we're not sleeping well, or we're not making sure that we eat regularly, or we're not venting to people about what's going on, we're holding it all inside. Those are indicators that I need to evaluate how I can up my self-care and be more aware of the impact of neglecting myself. Now, if we don't have someone in our life to talk to or vent to, this could mean that we need a journal, also finding a therapist so that we can ensure we're taking care of our physical and emotional well-being. Another thing you can do is make a list of the things that help you feel nurtured, help you feel cared for. And I know this can be really hard and really painful to tap into. Maybe this is something that you can do with your therapist who can offer some support as you're tapping into that. It's important to recognize that giving yourself the opportunity to think about what are the things that help you feel soothed and are there things that you wished your parent had done for you? And then let's make time to do those things for ourselves or maybe to ask somebody to do that with us or for us. You know, I have, I have somebody that I work with and he often says, if somebody can make me a great taco, that feels very nurturing to me. It doesn't have to be you know, really big list items. Tacos are great, but for him to recognize that as a way that somebody can nurture him or that he can feel cared for, that's a great thing that can be on that list. It can also, you know, when we stop and make time to do those things for ourselves, this can also start to help us feel better, feel more like a person, feel more confident. And then as we work through these last two steps, to overcoming childhood emotional neglect, the next step is to ask for help and support from others. And I know that that can be really hard to let people in, especially when we were shown from such a young age that we were too much or we weren't important. So to allow people that we already know, people who have already earned our trust, 
to let them get to know you, the real you, and to know that you don't have to share everything or every secret that you've ever held sacred, but you can begin by chatting about your day, about how things are going. You can start by keeping it light if you need to. Give yourself the opportunity to let that person in just a little bit at a time. So once we know they're respectful and deserving of our friendship, make sure that we text or call them. Let them know when we've had a bad day. Ask about how their day was. Can I be there for you emotionally as well as allowing you to be there for me? Can I lean on you? And can you lean on me? And we, through these little acts, begin to slowly create a support system so that those around us can help support us as we work to disprove all of the lies that we were told indirectly or directly as a child. And then the final step, I think, is setting healthy boundaries. Setting boundaries really is the beginning of you knowing who you are and differentiating from others and who they are. It's important for us to learn that it is okay to say no. You don't have to do anything that causes you more discomfort or pressure. I also tell my clients that when we're practicing boundary setting, or when we're practicing saying no, we might feel guilty. And the guilt is letting us know we are breaking long-standing rules which is the case in healing childhood emotional neglect. And that's a good thing. Guilt can start to be a cue that we're on the right track. So going back to our list of needs that we created, what's important to us, and then check in with ourselves. Ask ourselves if the thing that's being asked of you is in line with our self-care, with the list of things that we can do. Maybe it takes time away from your self-care that you need so much, or it goes against a need that you have then, you know, we would say the answer is no. What we're trying to do is teach ourselves that we are important, that our feelings are valid. And if another person is asking us for something that doesn't feel in alignment with where we are in that moment, or if somebody is in our life who isn't respecting us, then we can say no. In my experience, when we say no to somebody, or we just say no because it's not in line with how we feel or what we want, usually it's not that big of a deal. I think there's a lot of people out there who understand healthy boundaries and they're genuinely asking us a question. Does this work? Does it not? And they are not going to make that decision for us. So if we say no, they're going to respond by saying, okay, and they will be adaptive. And that's important for us to know because there's also people out there who are not used to boundaries. And if we have boundaries, they feel like that's harsh, that's mean, that's cruel. And they will be reactive because that's how they believe, you know, boundaries feel to them. And so it's helpful to to remind ourselves that some people who are used to boundaries can be very adaptive with the information we're giving them and are genuinely wanting to know how we feel about something, if it works for us, do we want something, do we not want something? And other people don't know that. And there can be both types of reactions. I think it's important to recognize that we don't have to change to a yes. We don't have to go along to get along. We can be accepting of another's reaction and still hold on to our no. Maybe they benefited from our lack of boundaries. Or they might be more comfortable with the way things were than the way we and things are becoming. 
It's also important to remind ourselves that we didn't cause our childhood emotional neglect and the reaction we get from others is not something we cause either. We get to have our emotional needs and other people are able to have theirs as well. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and education and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I'm not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.